When you think of a book like Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, it's an interesting book. It puts spiritual lessons into physical, tangible, graphic scenes, into physical descriptions, right? But we know these things are not meant to be modeled or followed after physically, um, but rather they give us spiritual lessons to apply to ourselves. This is much like how we, we are to apply a passage like Joshua chapter 6. There are many times the Old Testament shows us events and physical actions that really occurred. They are historical narratives, but they don't apply to us one for one. Rather, they give us spiritual lessons. They give us lessons about God and the life of faith. And here we see a physical kind of warfare in Joshua chapter 6 that is not to be repeated, but gives us spiritual lessons that we must apply in our lives. I want to break this passage down into two sections here. Felling the walls by faith, verses 1 to 21, and then also fleeing the curse of God by faith in verses 22 and following. So first of all here, felling the walls by faith, verses 1 to 21. And starting in verses 1 to 2, we see here a problem initially in this narrative. And then a promise of God. The problem is in verse 1. It says, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Of course, we know the Canaanites were trembling. They were shaking in their boots. They were afraid of the Israelites because they had seen what Israel had done on the other side of the Jordan. They defeated Sihon and Og. They occupied that land. They saw that they had crossed the Jordan on dry ground, that there was this great and awesome God working on their behalf. And yet they shut up their city. And so this is a problem. Israel couldn't get in to conquer the city. And Jericho, as we know, even from historical uh, archaeology, was a city that had two walls, two great and large walls. There was a first retaining wall five meters high. And on top of that, a mud brick wall, six to eight meters. Then an embankment where there were some houses built, like Rahab's house was built into the wall. This was probably not the best uh, real estate, not the greatest location. You probably didn't want to buy a house there because it's uh, not within the second wall. But there was this embankment and people would build uh, houses there. But then there was another mud brick wall, six to eight meters high. And so you could imagine Israelites coming to the edge of the city. They can not even see into the city, these great large walls. And this was an impregnable fortress. Like you think of Fort Knox, they had all the security. So the question right away is, how is Israel going to conquer the city? There's this problem. But then look at verse 2. You see the promise of God. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. 
God says here, he has already given the city into their hands with its king, with its mighty men of valor. This city would not stand before Israel is what he's saying. Of course, behind this promise is the reality that everything in this world is the Lord's to give. He owns it all, right? He's in control of it all. He's the judge and decider of all. He was choosing to bring Israel into that land by his sovereign goodness. And so Jericho was the first city he would give into their hand. This is very important for us to understand. In this passage, it was not merely that Israel conquered Jericho. In fact, they didn't. God conquered Jericho. God gave it into their hands. He said to them that he would do this prior. He gave Sihon and Og into their hands. For instance, Deuteronomy 2.33 and Deuteronomy 3.3. Later on in the Bible, for instance, we see a time when God chose actually to give the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 1.2. God ultimately decides what happens to kingdoms, lands, the outcome of battles, and the circumstances of our lives. He is the one who sovereignly gives. But here, this is a great promise. And Israel believed it. And we see in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, that God then outlined a battle plan for them. This is an unusual battle plan, isn't it? Now, it wouldn't have been unusual to see soldiers marching, perhaps before a battle, or even trumpets blown before a battle. These were rallying instruments. But these men were going to just march around the city once a day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day. And there were seven priests blowing these seven trumpets. God promised on the last day, as they blew a long blast, and the people shouted a great shout that the walls would collapse and they would be able to go straight up into the city and finish the job. These are strange tactics. This isn't normal kind of siege warfare, right? The people of Israel probably were not even equipped for that. But God gives them this order. And we get the details of it as the narrative goes on. The Ark of the Covenant was at the center of this march, the priests would carry it as seven priests were in front blowing their trumpets. There was a front and rear guard of soldiers marching with it. And Joshua tells the people they were not to speak until Joshua gave the command to shout. So you can imagine the people of Jericho even, maybe from the top of the walls, watching the Israelites march around this city like this. And it was about the distance of here to Ivy Lake Park. Not a, not a far distance to go around Jericho at that time. It was a city of about 1,200 people. Cities were smaller in those days. But as the people of Jericho watched the Israelites, probably suspense would increase day by day. Are they going to actually attack us? What are they trying to do? Are they intimidating us? What on earth are they actually doing? just marching around our city. 
But we see there's symbolism in these tactics. The symbolism points to the fact that it was God who was at work. That it was not the people of Israel and their power that would conquer this city. It was God's power. The sevens, as they were to march seven days of the week, reminds us of the seven days of creation. God made the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh. So the people marched for six days and had victory on the seventh. This was God's work. God created the world in six days. And he would also conquer this city in that seven-day week. The Ark of the Covenant was at the center of the march. And this is truly important. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's very presence with the people to fight for them. And so this showed that this was God working on their behalf. The priests went before as holy men. They were to conquer as a holy people, blowing the trumpets, announcing God's presence there. All this points to the fact that God himself was the one doing the conquering here, fighting the battle. It was not their power, but God's power. The battle would not be won by clever strategies from Joshua. Rather, Joshua came under the commander of the Lord's army, as we saw last week. And that commander gave him instruction, and the people were merely to follow it. And hence, there was this supernatural display of God's power. The instructions may have been strange, but they were simply to receive those instructions and obey them, trusting in God's word and power. In chapter 6, verse 6 to 14, we see that they did obey God's word. They followed the Lord's instructions. They had learned by now to follow God. The previous generation was unfaithful, but this generation saw God's glory. They saw God bring them through the Jordan on dry ground. Joshua was exalted before them, and they followed God, and they listened to God's word through Joshua. We don't see the people murmuring here, We don't see them questioning God. They don't say, what a crazy plan. This isn't going to work. This isn't what we should be doing. We'll we'll figure out our own way. We have no description of that here at all. Rather, they simply obeyed the word of God quietly, trusting the sovereign Lord and his promise. And then, of course, as we go on, verses 15 to 21, we see The walls falling, just as God said. The city was completely given into the hands of the people of Israel. They captured it. They devoted it to complete destruction. They annihilated it. And so God fulfilled what he said he would do. And they received this victory by faith. And all of this actually is corroborated even by archaeological findings. Back in the 1930s, a man named John Garsting did a partial excavation of Jericho, which is now called Tel Es Sultan. It's just a mound because over the years there were so many layers built up and the city was rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed. They found that around the year 1400 BC, this city had been destroyed. It had been completely burned 
and they had evidence of walls crumbling and collapsing. And many more evidences. There were pots of grain that were recently harvested. As Joshua 2.6 says, Rahab was drying out flax on her roof. And Joshua 3.15 tells us it was harvest time. The people had harvested their grains, but they didn't have time to eat them. Because this siege took them so quickly. There's a documentary um, by Bryant Wood. You can look up his name. He also has an article on answers in Genesis if you're interested in all this evidence. But we see here that God truly gave Jericho into their hands. Joshua commanded the people to shout and there was a long blast of the trumpets and the people were given victory. In fact, they even shouted with their victory cry even before it happened because they were trusting in the Lord and his word and he, they did what he told them and the city was destroyed as God's prom, prom, God promised. Friends, for us, sometimes God's directions to us will seem strange, especially from a worldly point of view. We do see a, a war ahead of us We see a great problem. We see impregnable fortresses in front of us. Even every day as we look to our sinful hearts and we ask for God to conquer our sins. We seek to live the life of faith. We look out to the mission that God has put before us. We see the ideologies and religions of this world which hold people captive. We see people's own pride which seems to be a fortress that we can't enter into. We see strongholds of addiction holding people down. But God says to us, go and make disciples of all the nations. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He gives us some very simple things that look weak to the world. He gives us prayer. He gives us the Word of God. He gives us fellowship with one another and worship. He gives us the gospel trumpet to go out and proclaim to the world what Jesus has done. Friends, these things look like a waste of time to the world. But we are not to murmur. We are not to disobey God and find our own way. Rather, this is the principle of faith. We're to trust God. Trust that these are the ways that God works powerfully in our lives and in our nation and we're to obey him and follow his word trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey it was by faith that these people conquered Jericho Hebrews 11:30 says this by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Frankly, it looks strange that we would get together, we would pray, that we would spend time in God's word. We're to trust these are the things that God truly blesses to make us victorious, to be able to live the Christian life. We have to walk by faith, not by sight. Friends, there are missionaries right now going to the Kulu people in Papua New Guinea. 
God is fulfilling his word that the coastlands would wait for his law. God is working if we can only see it, and if we join with him by faith. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 to 6 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And that's a passage written in the context of church life, really of church discipline as Paul was getting ready to come to them a third time. And he was going to take every thought captive to obey Christ. God can destroy the strongholds, even in our lives, in other people's lives, to transform us according to Christ's likeness. Ephesians 6, 16 and 18 reminds us, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul knew how to fight spiritual warfare. We see that he believed God. When God said, go and make disciples of all nations, Paul went and he just opened his mouth in the synagogues and marketplaces. He spoke the gospel and people were miraculously saved. Self-righteous Jews laid down their pride. Their pride came tumbling down and they trusted in Jesus as their Messiah, impure Gentiles surrendered all of their immorality and their sorceries and burned their magic books. People in Caesar's house became loyal to King Jesus first and foremost. Paul himself was a persecutor of the church, and yet look how God turned his life around. He destroyed that stronghold. People can change. You can change. As we fight spiritual warfare with the weapons God has given to us, we're to trust God that he will give victory. Sometimes we can get into sort of a, a despairing and discouraged mindset, thinking that we can't overcome these things. Well, God has promised they will be overcome. I have overcome the world, he says. You will have trouble in this world, but I've overcome it. First John says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We're to trust and obey and receive God's victory. So we see them felling the walls of Jericho by faith. We also see in the rest of this passage, fleeing the curse by faith. We see that the whole city of Jericho was devoted to destruction. We see that every person living in it was destroyed. Men, women, even the children, even the animals were put to the edge of the sword. There was a complete destruction here. Yet some of them fled that curse by faith, namely Rahab and her household. But this brings up probably some of the most difficult questions in our minds about these things that occurred in the Bible. What are we to think about God sending the Israelites into another territory 
and destroying all its inhabitants, both men and women, young and old, not, not sparing anybody. Some have difficulty reckoning with this. This is probably one of the biggest apologetic questions that people have about the Bible. What, what about these holy wars in the Old Testament? Are, are Christians really just like, say, radical Islamists doing jihad? Does this mean the crusades of the Roman Catholic Church were biblical? Are they warranted? Any serious student of Christian history has to reckon with those crusades driven by the Roman Catholic Church beginning in the 11th century when the, the church drove people to take up arms and wage physical warfare to recover holy places and punish heretics. Is that equivalent to what God does here? And, and what about when, when we read about who is included in this destruction? Not just the men of war, but everyone, even innocent children. These are difficult questions, at least on the surface. And this passage, whatever it does, it, it does not leave us feeling comfortable, does it? In fact, it even makes so many so-called Bible scholars uncomfortable that they try to explain these passages away, saying that these were actually just sort of conventions of speech when it says that they destroyed everyone and everything. This was, this was just a common way of talking about destruction in that day. And so they really didn't destroy every single individual. But that's really just trying to explain this passage away. Uh, that's not a faithful interpretation. Rather, we will see as we go into the rest of Scripture that exactly this took place. It was a complete devotion to utter destruction. But as we look at the biblical data, honestly, it should make us feel uncomfortable. Not in the sense of being embarrassed for God that he would do such a thing. No, it should make us feel uncomfortable about our own sin, which deserves this kind of outpouring of wrath. I want to explain this devotion to destruction a little bit more with five points from Scripture. First of all, we have to understand the word used here. When it says that things were devoted to destruction, for instance, verse 18, the word used there is perem which does mean that something was banned such that it was only good to be destroyed or else to be put in special use. We see that everything in the cities was to be destroyed, while only the precious metals were taken into the treasury of the Lord as holy to him. Verse 19. We also see here that anyone who would rebuild Jericho was cursed because it was devoted to complete destruction. It's what verse 26 says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. We see actually exactly that happening in 1 Kings 16.34. In that time of the most wicked king of Israel, Ahab, a man named Heel of Bethel, raised up the city again and lost his firstborn and his youngest son. This place was cursed. It was completely destroyed 
and was good for nothing but to be destroyed. Now, this was not the normal way that the Israelites were to wage warfare. We have to understand that. And for that, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20 for a moment. Deuteronomy 20. And verse 10 to 18. We'll see that normally the people of Israel were to offer peace terms to a city beforehand, but this was a special case. These Canaanite nations had to be destroyed completely. It says in Deuteronomy 20.10, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So that's the normal process for other cities outside Canaan. Then in verse 16, it says, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So we have to understand this was a special case, this Cherem. It was not the normal course for Israel and its armies. Now, we also have to understand here that God didn't have one rule for these nations and then another rule for Israel. Rather, the Israelites were also called in the law to devote to destruction any of their own cities if the inhabitants turned aside to idolatry. You see that in Deuteronomy 13. So turn there for a second. Deuteronomy 13, 12 to 18. If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true, and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever it shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God 
keeping all his commandments that I command you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. This was also true of the individual who had enticed people to idolatry. He was to be devoted to destruction. And so it's not as if God is just specially doing this to those nations. He would also do it to Israel. He would devote even their cities to destruction for their sins. And so we begin to understand this concept of devotion to destruction. And second point in considering this, we have to understand God's justice, his just punishment, as well as his mercy. God is always just in punishing sin and in choosing when and how he does that. Just as a court gets to decide the sentence of a criminal, God is the just judge and he gets to decide how he punishes people and when he does that. In fact, God had been very patient with this people in Canaan. In Genesis 15, 16, which would have been around the year 2000 BC, God had said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And some 600 years later, God is patiently waiting for the iniquity to be complete before he devoted this people to destruction. Evidently, by that time, their iniquity was complete. They were so full of idolatry and sin that they were to be delivered to destruction. And Deuteronomy talks also about how God was not bringing them into that land because of their righteousness, but rather because of the wickedness of these nations. These were people groups who would sacrifice children in rituals to their gods. It was really a mercy even that God would relieve the children from this and bring them quickly into his own arms. Leviticus 18.21 talks about this. Deuteronomy 12.21, Deuteronomy 18.10. These were people who constantly shed innocent blood to terrible false gods. These were people who practiced sorcery and necromancy, Deuteronomy 18.10. These people were extremely perverse and immoral, allowing all kinds of unnatural relations, like we learn of in Leviticus 18. We could say that even it was a mercy upon the earth to erase these people from the land. The land was so sick of them. Leviticus 18, 25 says, it vomited them out. God was just in punishing these people. Friends, God is just if he punishes any sinner. In fact, I'd say our nation of Canada is not much better. Perhaps even worse, we are proud of our sin and our unnatural inclinations. We also shed innocent blood every year through abortion. We are very wicked people, and we deserve God's judgment. We need to understand this. God is just in punishing all sin, however he decides to do it. And we see even that there will be a great day of judgment 
the climax of history. Jesus will return in glory with his holy angels. And he will gather all nations before him. And people, young and old, slave and free, the great ones and the least, will be put before the Lord in judgment. And God will devote to everlasting destruction all those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet in speaking of the destruction of God and his justice in punishing people, we also have to understand the mercy of God. See, even in this passage here, even in the midst of a complete and total destruction, God still had mercy on Rahab and her house. God is willing to make a covenant of mercy with all those who turn to him in faith. And so we see verse 25, Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. God is a God of mercy as well as a God of justice. He is ready to save alive those who turn to him and fear him and put their trust in his holy name. And so understanding then more of the justice and mercy of God, we also ought to understand Israel's holy vocation. God was intending for Israel that they would be completely holy. And so he had to get rid of the corrupting influence of the Canaanites. This is another reason for the conquest. The destruction of these nations would allow Israel, hypothetically at least, to be God's holy people, his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. They were to keep themselves pure in that land by devoting the Canaanites to complete destruction, something that we see they actually did not end up doing. And so in the book of Judges, we see them becoming more and more like those nations by the end of the book. But God told them to do this so that they would not turn away their sons from following after the true God, Deuteronomy 7.4. Is this not also... A fourth point, a display of God's awesome and mighty power that he would use a weak and small nation like Israel to dispossess all these nations. It says in Deuteronomy 7, seven nations greater and more mighty than yourselves. God shows that he's a great and awesome God by driving out these people, even with strange tactics like we see in Joshua chapter 6. It's a display of God's glorious power as he devotes some to destruction, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, even as it says in Romans 9 and refers back to Pharaoh. God chose to harden his heart that he might display his great power and glory against Egypt. We also need to consider, when we talk about this matter of Hiram, the uniqueness of the Old Testament period. These sorts of events were unique to that time. The people of God are obviously no longer charged to take up arms and do physical warfare. In fact, we are explicitly 
forbidden from doing so. Romans chapter 12, just turn there for one moment. Romans 12, 19 to 21. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our fight is not against flesh and blood enemies. Rather, it's even against our own soul, our own flesh, that would want to be overcome by evil and take vengeance. Rather, we're to overcome evil with good and respond with the kindness and love God has shown us, that he's had mercy upon us even as we deserved to be devoted to destruction. Friends, we do warfare, but not according to the flesh. As 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, our battle is a spiritual one, as Ephesians 6 tells us. We can confidently say that, for instance, the crusades of the Roman Catholic Church were not biblical. In fact, they're a stain on Christian history because they were not following God and his word faithfully. But this holy war we see in Joshua 6 does give us a vivid picture of the fight that we have against sin, against idolatry, against the influence of the world and spiritual forces of evil that we need much faith and courage for. These events inspire us as we fight, as we see how God worked with this tiny little nation through no power of their own. Also, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us as we seek to live this Christian life and eradicate all sin and uncleanness from our lives and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, in closing application, as I said, this passage ought to make us feel uncomfortable, but not about God and what he did there. He was completely just in doing so. It ought to make us feel uncomfortable because of the heinousness of our own sin. God, like he destroyed Jericho, ought to destroy us for our sins. And he is coming to judge all the earth one day in righteousness. This shows us just how wicked, how heinous our sin is. That it deserves to be blotted out, erased, given no opportunity to propagate any longer. Like a weed that you would want to destroy out of your lawn. You, you try to get every last one or bed bugs in your house that you try to exterminate. Every last one till they, they can't propagate any longer. This is how God sees sin. He sees sinners perfectly, clearly in his omniscience, his all-knowingness. He sees just how hateful and selfish and perverted sin is. He sees all that the damage that it brings to the people around us and our own lives, the 
destruction that it leaves in its wake. This is God in his holiness showing us just how much he abhors sin. That it ought to be devoted, Param, completely to destruction. And again, there is a day when he is coming to do exactly that. God will rid this world of sin and set up a home of righteousness. Revelation 6, 14 to 17 gives us a glimpse into that great and terrible day. It says the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The walls couldn't stand at Jericho that day, and neither will anyone stand before the great and terrible wrath of God if they are not hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to see, friends, what our sin deserves, and that God is coming indeed in judgment not unlike that day at Jericho. But friends, we're also to see from this passage the amazing grace and mercy of God. Because out of that judgment, Christ saves alive, broken sinners. If we will only take his word that he is coming to judge the earth, that we will see our sin for what it is and humble ourselves before him and look to Jesus Christ by faith, he saves us. He saves us alive forever. We never come under God's judgment again, just like Rahab. We can find a place among the people of God. Christ saved two other people at Jericho, which is very interesting. I want you to look at Luke chapter 18, verse 35. These stories in the Gospels give us more pictures of how Jesus can save people just like us. Luke 18.35 As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David! Have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Are you spiritually blind, lost in your sin? You can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Luke 19. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. 
And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. You know, this man was sinning because he was getting money off of his tax collecting. But verse 3 says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that, the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, are you lost? Have you sinned against the Lord? Do your sins deserve judgment? Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost. Salvation can come to your house today by trusting in Jesus Christ. And he'll turn you around, give you true repentance, such that you'll even seek to restore the things that you defrauded. Friends, this is the amazing grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that we even see in Jericho. And you can experience by faith. You can flee the destruction of God. If you trust in Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, friends, from this passage, we do need to see that we must walk by faith in the Spirit's power in order to accomplish the mission God has given us and to devote our sins to destruction. Ultimately, this should teach us that God wants no sin in our lives as well. We're to put it all to death as Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. We're to take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ, knowing his grace, fueled by that grace, depending upon the spirit of God, using the means that God has given us, his word and prayer. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. Trusting that God will give the victory to us by his own power. And as God does this work in our lives, just as it says at the very end of Joshua 6, that Joshua's fame spread in all the land. May Jesus' fame spread throughout all the earth as we show the power of God in victory. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that your name would be glorified, high and lifted up, that Jesus Christ would be known among the nations because you have a people in this world, Lord, that you have redeemed by your own grace and mercy, Lord, that are walking by faith and not by sight. Lord, we do pray that you would give us strength for the daily battle, the fight, the good fight of the faith. Lord, that you would help us to wage the good warfare as we look to you for our power and strength. In Jesus' name we pray.